Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast. This is our annual self-indulgent podcast talking about movies. Joining me on the podcast once again is my friend from WTOP, the entertainment editor there, Jason Fraley. Welcome back to the podcast, Jason. Thanks so much for having me, man. This is a fun new annual tradition. I guess the second year we've done it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although we had kind of a like an August, like a dog days of August <laughs> uh, conversation about when you did your crazy. I'm going to rate 10,000 movies, uh, yeah, that's right. which again was a great project. But what we try to do every year, you know, we're both members of the Screen Actors Guild. I mean, you know, Jason sees movies all the time. He reviews, reviews movies all the time. Screen Actors Guild, for their awards, they send out screeners. So I've been watching a lot of these screeners. And it's just because, you know, the best movies of 2018, it's on everybody's mind. We figured, hey, let's just have a fun little, little conversation about it. So we're going to count down the top 10 movies, according to Jason. And we're also going to talk about uh, the top 10 top grossing films. I'm using the word top a lot, it seems. And then <laughs> uh, to start <laughs> off with, well, let's start off with just a general question. How was 2018 as a, a year in movies? I enjoyed that there was a lot of range in the year. I think the top, top movies were, I'd say, a cut below some previous years where, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, one year you had boyhood Birdman, you know there was like several big yeah. juggernauts released the same year i'd so i'd say maybe a slight down tick on the top ones but in terms of you know the general range i'm super thrilled with it because you know you had a bunch of different genres that were really well done even like the big blockbuster superhero was black panther which we're going to definitely get to towards the top of the list that was fantastic that was a well-made movie that also was the box office champ a uh, quiet place just like get out last year horror flicks were really well well done and seen by a lot of people that was i think top 15 in the box office but also super well done really acclaimed musicals a star is born also i was really high at the box office i think it was number 12 and that's getting a lot of acclaim but then you mixed in that you had you know your, your film festival favorites like your romas and your if beale streets and green books and black Klansmen's things like that which we'll, we'll get into all of those here in a second but in terms of overall just macro level i thought there was a lot of range this year which i really really appreciated because not every year you get great movies in every genre like that I was really surprised. I didn't go out to the movies a lot. I did watch a lot of movies. I streamed a lot of movies. There were a lot of movies that were released in theaters. And then at the same time, they were streamed. You know, Netflix rolled out a bunch of really good movies over the last year. I think we're actually kind of seeing the benefit of streaming on the content of our, our movies. I think we're seeing more variety. At least I hope that's what it is. I think, you know, as we get into the, you're the quality guy, I'm the money guy. <laughs> as we go down the list here of the top, you know, 10 most grossing movies, you're going to see that a lot of them are mass appeal, you know, superhero type movies. I was really surprised at how many, you know, good movies there were and different types of movies. Uh, I'd also like to point out that I was just looking through it today and the entire top 10 that we're about to go through on the box office, just pure money, money wise, are all of them are sequels, prequels, remakes, origin stories, all of them. If you remove that, 
the top three grossing, if you're talking about just purely a one-off original self-contained movie, it was Bohemian Rhapsody was one, A Quiet Place was two, and Crazy Rich Asians was three. And last year, if you do the same thing, it'd be Coco, Dunkirk, and Get Out. So I think it's interesting to yeah. see where those fall. It's sad they're not never in the top ten, but those usually fall like in the f- top fifteen now because those top ten slots, especially the last decade or so, are all those built-in brands. You know, people are going to see those movies. It's funny because a lot of the conversation over the last few years about Hollywood and the way it picks what movies it's going to do was this, oh, they're just going to make all these sequels. They're going to make all these superhero movies. They're not going to be the quality films. But, you know, man, last year we saw some quality films. We're seeing some quality films again this year. Those movies are getting made. There may be an economy for those types of movies now that maybe there wasn't before. Uh, you know, I don't know how you describe where they pop up. I know sometimes I think to agree, maybe it's maybe it's the Netflix factor that you that you have films that are that are created to be streamed that premiere in movies, but also premiere on uh, streaming services that it allows for for, you know, maybe not necessarily a blockbuster film, but like a superhero movie, but something that's a little more quality oriented. That's something that people will sit down and, and watch. We got lots of movies to talk about, so let's let's sort of dive into it. Before we get into our countdown, this is how we kind of spread it out and, and create anticipation. Um, <laughs> you've got some you've got some runners up you want to talk about first. Let's talk about just outside the top ten yes. movies. And I'm gonna go. What through, do you got? I'm gonna go through these pretty quick because we want to spend more time on the actual list. My honorable mentions I have as eighth grade. This is really adorable coming of age story. Uh, commenting on our YouTube culture and what teens have to go through with bullying. Widow, Steve McQueen. The heist movie with Viola Davis, Deep Cast, uh, that was his follow-up to 12 Years a Slave. Crazy Rich Asians was a box office juggernaut, a win for diverse representation on screen, all Asian cast. Avengers Infinity War had to include that. That was one of the big box office hits. We'll get to that later. But in terms of, I thought it was really, really gutsy how (laughs) they let Thanos win. The villain snapped his fingers and cut to black. That was pretty ballsy. The Wife, I had that in here. Glenn Close just won, just stunned Lady Gaga and won, won the Golden Globe for best Best Actress, which if you go back and look at my review on T.O.P., I said that when the movie came out, like in October, we interviewed Close, and I said, this is going to finally win her the Oscar. I included First Reformed, um, Not For Everybody, a bizarre movie by Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, but I wanted to include that because I thought Ethan Hawke was amazing as the priest there. I included Vice with uh, the, you know Christian Bale disappearing into the role of Dick Cheney. Stan and Ollie, similar reasons. I just reviewed that today. Steve Coogan and John C. Riley as Laurel and Hardy. And then I gave some love to Can You Ever Forgive Me? with Melissa McCarthy in a slightly more serious role as a, uh, a declining author in, in New York. That movie in particular, I, did, I really didn't like. It was <laughs> fine. It was fine. It was well made. It was just, it wasn't for me a particularly feel-good movie. I was just like, eh, okay. Bad people. It's a good movie, yes, but it's not, it's not, not the movie I, I would have I liked. I liked Vice. I liked Christian Bale's performance in that. You know, man, Glenn Close is Glenn Close. I mean, she didn't break a sweat with that movie. I mean, she was... So spot on, so great, so Glenn Close. I mean, if she wins the Academy Award for Best Actress, I'm fine with that. And Crazy Rich Asians, that was actually something that one of my students at American University had recommended to me. She said, have you seen this? It's really great. And so I went and I saw it. And I, I was really kind of blown away. It was a, a great movie. One of the movies that's not on any of the lists that that you haven't mentioned that that I liked a lot, which is sort of an oddball movie, was Mandy, the, the Nicolas Cage movie. It's very hallucinogenic. I saw it streaming. It's just a really well-made movie. Some of the reviews I read of it, you know, they they were kind of like, oh, it's a, 
it's a cult film, you know, it's like a perfect cult film. And so who wants to see a perfect cult film? And I was kind of like, well, you know, if somebody creates some uses the, you know, sort of a cult genre to, to tell a story, I mean, if they do it really well, isn't, isn't that an accomplishment? It's not a movie for everybody, but it was visually kind of stunning. Did you get a chance to see that and review it? Mandy? No, I missed Mandy. Well, you put that on your to-do list. I'm, I'm gonna do, you, you, uh, there are a couple that you mentioned that I haven't seen yet that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do. I was just going to say, also on this honorable mentions list, I had a couple breakout things I highlighted. So I did most underrated, which I had as Bohemian Rhapsody, which I guess now <laughs> now after the Golden Gloves, uh, I guess it's overrated. But um, yeah, I think I was one of the few people back when this came out, I think in November, I saw it getting slammed by the critics, which it kind of it made me scratch my head. The Rotten Tomato score was so low. I remember in my review, I was I said, pay no attention to that. That's just Radio Gaga. Because I remember sitting in the theater and how well audiences and even some of those same critics that later gave it a bad review. I'm looking at no one in particular, but I, I saw people laughing and enjoying the hell out of especially that final you know live aid concert that Dale Dale like everyone was eating that up and then all of a sudden you see these mediocre reviews and I was like okay I had that as my most underrated for a, a while but now I guess you know, now that a couple weeks have passed since I did my end of the year list and it won at the Globes I guess it's a little overrated now you got to spin that a little different you got to make it look like well you know I was talking about this movie two months ago and where were you that's I mean, what that's I was what trying to say yeah. <laughs> I love that movie. It's a great Remy Malik. He was astounding. It was a great performance and he may win the Academy Awards. You never know. I think he could. He was so good at, as Freddie Mercury. And I think the reason that, that critics dinged it is, sim- is simply just that it, you know, the analogy would be, it's like watching a greatest hits rather than an original concept album. When it comes award time, you like to honor those new, you know, the new ideas, but I mean, come on, you can't deny. And this is what I was trying to say two months ago in November. Like you can't deny how electrifying that is, especially if you're a Queen fan. And I mean, it was the first cassette tape. Their Greatest Hits was the first cassette tape I ever owned. And I think Freddie Mercury is my favorite voice in rock and roll history. So like the octaves he could hit were unrivaled. So, I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody was great. I had that as most underrated when I did this back at New Year's. And then most overrated, I thought the favorite. The performances were great by Olivia Colman and Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone. I saw this out at Middleburg. It's by Yorgos Lanthimos, the guy that made The Lobster, which I despised. Um, I think he's just not my cup of tea. I totally granted if everyone, if other people like it, I thought it was going to be like a Whit Stillman love and friendship kind of a comedy of manners sort of a deal, which I love, love and friendship with Kate Beckinsale. I enjoyed it until I didn't. I thought it was sassy, wicked, you know, period piece fun, I'd say for about the first half, but then it just really didn't go anywhere. And I saw audiences walk out of that festival scratching their heads with that, you know, with the closing image. So I didn't get the, I didn't get the buzz on that. I think that one's a little overrated. I'm going to have to come to blows with you over this one. Go for uh, it. I, a lot I, of people like I, it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I agree with you that The Lobster is a difficult movie. I enjoyed The Lobster quite a lot. I like this movie much better. I love the performances. I love the way it was shot. It was shot so strangely. It was a beautiful film. We're going to have to do, agree to disagree, sir. Lots of fisheye lenses. It was really cool. To, yeah. Um, it was definitely an interesting movie to watch. I just, I don't know, something with, with that director. I feel like the end of his movies. I don't know. They don't, never know how to wrap up the script. I had some categories could have been so much more where I had hereditary and annihilation. Yeah. Um, I thought Tony Collette was so amazing. And I thought it was the first two thirds, even no first four fifths of that movie. One of the best directed and written horror films that I'd ever seen. And then the end when she's, you know, floating up around on the ceiling and they do the big reveal. I thought that tanked it a little bit for me. Same with annihilation. I thought that was such a fascinating movie. Where is it going to build? Where is it going to build? And then when you get the reveal, you're kind of like, ah, all right. 
that kind of reminded me of the Russian films Stalker, Hereditary. I like both of the movies. I liked Hereditary a lot, but I, I agree with you. I think its parts were much better than its whole, unfortunately. I wouldn't call Hereditary an annihilation. That's why I didn't have him as overrated or movies. anything like that. I had just had it. I wanted a separate category where it was like they were solid, really movies that like I just thought were promising that could I thought could have been masterpieces but kind of just missed it and then the last final breakout category I just did must see documentaries more or less I just wanted to be able to include 10 fiction films in my actual top 10 so I wanted to mention some docs here three identical strangers I thought was fantastic it was like a little mystery thriller documentary about triplets that were separated at birth and then yet they wind up kind of living parallel lives and they intersect back again the further they unravel that mystery it just goes to places that you wouldn't expect and I'm a twin myself so that one really hit home. And then also, uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, about Mr. Rogers. It was Morgan uh, Neville that did the documentary. Man, I thought just almost one of the most surprisingly emotional ones of the year in terms of, you know, you find out a lot about Fred Rogers of, you know, inviting an African-American to wash his feet in his kiddie swimming pool at a time that segregation was, you know, banning Af- actual African-Americans from actual swimming pools. And just sort of the idea of taking the high road and we need to get back to just good, decent, everyday kindness. I think in the current political climate of, of, you know, there's so much name calling now and, you know, um, and giving nicknames on to political candidates. It's everything's so mean, mean, fiery. To see this movie come about, Won't You Be My Neighbor, it just said, man, we, we kind of need to get back to, you know, let's make America good again kind of a deal. Okay, so those are your also rans. But so let's let's get into the top 10 here. And, and the way we're going to do this is I'm going to mention what the, you know, number 10 top grossing film in the U.S. was, and then you're going to tell us what your number 10 pick was. So maybe these will cross over. We'll have to see. Maybe not. <laughs> we'll see. We'll I see can, how far we I can here see before we have a crossover. I, see, I can see one. I, I, think. I see only one. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I wonder which one it'll be. Um, so anyway, the top 10 most grossing film of, that means grossing not in gross, but in how much money it brought in, Venom, the sort of Spider-Man-ish story, brought in uh, $213.2 million. What would you take on Venom? Didn't see it. I saw it. This is one of those times I dragged my ass into to the theater to, to watch a movie. It was okay. It wasn't my favorite you know, superhero movie, but it was fine. Just didn't fit into your uh, schedule, sir. It was the same weekend that A Star is Born came out. And so we reviewed that um, on T.O.P. that Friday. And then uh, I'm going to circle back and, and try to hit it. Then it got such bad reviews, like 30-something on Rotten Tomatoes. And I was just kind of like, eh, I'll get around to it later eventually and just still haven't. It's one of those, um, honestly, it's just sort of not my not my bag, baby. <laughs> not a big superhero not your bag. guy. Yeah. That's cool. And you see, like I said, as superhero sco- movies go, it's probably one you could, you could miss. So your number 10, sir, is... I had If Beale Street Could Talk by Barry Jenkins. The director, really good movie. Yeah, the director that did Moonlight. He won the Oscar for, for uh, Best Picture there. I remember that <laughs> that crazy snafu with the La La Land thing. Um, but uh, so this is his follow-up. Everyone's wanted to know, you know, what's he going to do next? And I'm, I'm glad that he chose this. It's a James Baldwin novel. It's actually the first adaptation ever that anyone's done well for a narrative movie Ava DuVernay adapted Baldwin's uh, I Am Not Your Negro into an awesome uh, documentary a couple years ago 
Well, this is the first, you know, Nick narrative fiction novel um, that anyone's made into a movie um, about a, a 19-year-old pregnant girl played by Kiki Lane who's trying to prove the innocence of her fiancé, uh, Stefan James. You remember him as Jesse Owens in the movie a couple years ago. He's falsely accused of rape, so they're trying to prove his innocence while she's also pregnant. Um, so it's sort of a heavy movie with the social commentary, um, commenting on, you know, broken criminal justice system, racism, all that stuff in 70s Harlem. But what made it stand out for me was there's so many human elements that... That, you know, that social commentary doesn't overshadow and it's, it doesn't weigh too heavily on the movie. There's so many human moments, like when they're looking for their new empty new apartment and they're going around that, you know, the, the flat there in Brooklyn and, uh, you know, they're pretending to carry the refrigerators across the room and all that stuff. We actually spoke with Jenkins. He came to town and I was asking him about my favorite shot in the movie where we actually see childbirth from the child's perspective. You know, remember the camera kind of shoots up out of the out of the water into um, Regina King's arms. She's looking like she's going to win Best Supporting Actress. So, I mean, to me, I wanted to have it in my top ten. I didn't. I don't think it's quite the breakthrough watershed moment that Moonlight was because, you know, that shattered stereotypes of, you know, of uh, masculinity, homosexuality in the African-American community. I think that's going to be a touchstone we look back on years to come. But, you know, Beale Street's pretty darn close to it, if you ask me. It's, I thought it was really well made. I enjoyed it a lot. We're going to talk about a couple of movies that tackle uh, race in, in, in America and – of them, I think this has a, a really powerful story to tell. But I felt, um, and maybe it was because it was it was you know adapted from a book, and maybe there's a little reverence to the book. I felt it was very stagey, very much like a play in some places. And, and for me, in those scenes, I kind of felt distant from the characters. But you know, th- this minor criticism to a really well acted, well performed, well written movie. So yeah, definitely, definitely something to go see. So the the number nine most uh, grossing movie of the year was Solo, a Star Wars story. It brought in a mere, because it's a Star Wars movie, it should have brought in more, a mere 213.77 million. Imagine if it were a good Star Wars movie, how much it would have brought in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this is one of those, I didn't think it was, it was very well done at all. I, I think this is one of those where... The fact that it's in the box office top 10 here is based not on its own merits at all. I think it's based purely on the built-in brand of Star Wars that, you know, whatever they put out yeah. there, colon, a Star Wars story. I, like, I thought Rogue One was so much better as a standalone story, and I thought that was one of the, the pitfalls here in Solo, where they, instead of, you know, making it a self-contained, closed-off, you know, sort of one-off, like like Rogue One ended on that powerful, sacrificial moment there, Solo tried to leave it open like almost they were going to try to make their own mini-franchise within the franchise, and for me, I thought that was one of the the downfalls of it. But I, I also thought that, what's his name? Alden Ehrenreich. I didn't think he was terribly, he didn't look or sound that much like Harrison Ford to me. It, on the plus side, I do think it, it was really cool seeing him meet Chewbacca in that, you know, that underground fight scene where they had to get out of that little uh, den there. And it was cool seeing how he got the Millennium Falcon from Lando Calrissian, who I thought Donald Glover was really great too. Childish Gambino himself. So there were some some bright spots, but all in all, I don't know. I, <laughs> I thought it paled in comparison to the recent, it's like For- Force Awakens and Rogue One for sure. I think this really suffers from the problems with doing a sequel, especially a, a sequel that's been, you know, a series of movies that's been around so long that you're trying to service so many different people. You're trying to serve service the old fans and, and try to give them characters that they and incidents that they remembered or they, or they imagined, you know, they want to see the meeting of Han Solo and Chewie or, or how he got the Millennium Falcon. But you also want to, you know, speak to the new people who want to have a new Star Wars and something that's new. You know, this is something they're going to have to noodle through if, if they're ever going to make another Star Wars movie. I really wish they would wait more time in between. I think, you know, back in 
back in the the glory days of the franchise, you know, you had three years in between, you know, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. There's three years in between. It allows us a hunger to get, you know, excited for the next Roman numeral episode. But Solo, you know, now that they have all these in-betweeners, these Solo ones, I think that came out, what, five months after The Last Jedi? So I'm always of the mindset, you know, let me start missing you a little bit before you, you hit me again with the same brand. Your number nine, sir, is ooh. This is my sort of indie hit of the summer. It was uh, Blind Spotting by a filmmaker named Carlos Lopez Estrada, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners, um, a lot of our listeners probably haven't seen this, but I suggest checking it out. I thought it was even better than Sorry to Bother You. Sorry to Bother You was another Oakland film with racial comments, but I thought Blind Spotting was far superior. I always say it's sort of like how Matt Damon and Ben Affleck wrote, you know, Goodwill Hunting, sort of those Boston boys, right, and for them to, to act in. It's a similar thing, only here it was Oakland best friends. David Diggs, who we remember from Hamilton, he played Thomas Jefferson, and his longtime buddy, his white friend, Raphael Cassell, and they play, you know, a man trying to avoid probation, or try to avoid trouble while he's still on probation, but his white friend is the volatile one raging against this changing neighborhoods, uh, you know, gentrification so that's kind of flipped a little bit how the white guy he's mad at his stereotypes i thought it was just so well done especially the direction in that opening credit sequence they juxtapose you know the different sides of oakland they had you know the the a shiny whole foods right next to a gritty bodega there on this on a split screen in the credits and then they you know the whole title comes from yeah he watches a police shooting of an unarmed black man in the blind spot of his rearview mirror in the truck but it also refers to they mentioned later you know the idea of ruben's vase where you know you can Two people can look at the same thing, that same optical illusion, and get two different things. And that's sort of a, I thought it was a genius sort of idea of, you know, we all have our own cultural blind spots of how we, we view race in America. Um, not to mention sort of the freestyle rap finale. That's kind of gutsy to do his Hamilton raps in the end of a movie. So uh, there was so much packed in here. I was really blown away by it. I feel like I got to know Oakland. I never had much of a, an impression of Oakland, but I came away f- having a sense of, of Oakland identity from these characters, you know, the, the challenges they face. I mean, we just talked about If Beale Street Could Talk. This is another movie that's, that's tackling race in America. I think it has a, a number of really great points that it makes. Unlike Beale, it, not, it's not super serious in the way it's presenting these things. It, they're aspects of the story and the way it sort of acts out. It gives you sort of an aha. Oh, oh okay. So yeah, the, I understand now this is a much bigger as you were saying, the blind spot, it fills in the blind spots that you have culturally about people you don't understand. It plays with your preconceptions. It's a wonderful film. It's an entertaining film. So the the number eight most grossing film of the year, Ant-Man and the Wasp. And that brought in $216.65 million. It's a movie I saw recently on video. I liked it a lot. You know, it's a Marvel movie. What's not to like about a Marvel movie? And it kind of fits in with what's going on with the Avengers and the next Avengers movie. So I'm looking forward. It, it helped me to get ready for that. I really gave a positive review to Ant-Man and the Wasp. I really enjoyed it when it came out. I think if I'm trying to put myself, if you put yourself back in the mindset of where we were in that summer, you know, Infinity War was, you know, was great and made so much money, but it left you on that sort of gut punch, you know, a down, sort of a downer ending. Oh my God, we're whacking all of our favorite members, even though you know they're going to come back. 
so I thought Ant-Man and the Wasp was that great, lighthearted family film, sort of a reprieve from that. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, same as the first Ant-Man, that whole shape shifting, size shifting has the possibilities for comedy are just endless with that. You know, I remember here in this one, there was that I think they battle the villain in like the a kitchen of a restaurant and someone throws a salt shaker and then that gets blown up into a giant salt shaker and she's miniature running. You know, she's subatomic running across it or, you know, there's just... Or I think there was like a what an eighteen wheeler truck. He's riding as like a it's it, they shrink it and he rides it like a a scooter through <laughs> the hills of San Francisco. I thought it was that thing for me, man. I I honestly could watch that size shifting stuff of Ant Man over and over again. And Paul Rudd is just so charming. I I dug it. So your number eight movie is Black Klansman, Spike Lee. I thought Spike Lee was. I thought it's one of his most inspired movies in years. I mean, to me, the masterpiece was we're on the 30th anniversary now of uh, Do the Right Thing. Everybody has to go back and look at that again. I thought that was, I think that's the best movie ever made, even better than Malcolm X. But um, I think maybe, maybe he's just fired up now by, you know, Charlottesville and the Trump presidency and all that stuff. But I think he just seems, Spike Lee seems like he's fired up and comes out with all guns blazing here. He opens with that archival footage, you know, that famous Confederate flag crane shot over the Civil War battlefield from Gone with the Wind. He mixes in some scenes from Birth of a Nation, the D.W. Griffith one. And then he ends with actual footage from, from Charlottesville, Virginia, those those deadly uh, neo-Nazi protests to kind of show that, wait, hey, this is still going on. And just the idea that it was a true story of, you know, the, the Colorado cop, Ron Stallworth, infiltrating the Ku Klux Klan with the help of uh, Adam Driver as his Jewish sidekick. I thought... Oh, and uh, Topher Grace as, as uh, David Duke was uh, terrifying as well. I love the score by Terrence Blanchard, who's actually coming to Blues Alley this week. Go back and listen to that music. I think it's my favorite music of the year. He works with Spike on all of his movies. But man, oh man, Denzel Washington's son. He sounds exactly like him. Den- John David Washington <laughs> getting nominated from some stuff. If you close your eyes, it's it's freaky how similar it is. But I thought it was one of those, you know, that one of those movies that that's acclaimed, but also was like super fun to watch. Yeah, it did everything it was it set out to do, but it did it really artfully. You know, sometimes it's easy to get sort of preachy with, you know, the me- your messaging and the way that Spike had like we're friends, I can call him by first name. Uh, <laughs> the way that Spike incorporates real footage, the footage from uh, from Charlottesville, for example. I mean, it gives it so much power and so much context. It's an entertaining movie. It's it's suspenseful in parts funny it's kind of everything and it and it, it you know it wraps up it's it's very serious message in just a nice little package really enjoyed it the number seven most grossing movie of the year mission impossible fallout i did not see this grossed 220.16 million dollars isn't it kind of crazy that ethan hunt has sort of surpassed James Bond at this point, or even even Jason Bourne. I mean, he's outlasted Tom Cruise in doing a lot of his own effects. You know, I, I think in the previous one, remember he was like holding onto the side of the plane, and and the one before that, he climbed that glass tower, <laughs> that giant skyscraper. I think it's the staying power of that guy is pretty darn incredible. And he makes other movies like American Made that I thought was underrated, and the Live Die Repeat movie. Remember that one? That was that was um, that was underrated. But I don't know how he keeps doing it, and the fact that what are we? I think this is the sixth installment now i think i think a lot of audiences look forward to these mission impossibles more than the the bond sequels now i think that's fascinating how that's happened in recent years 
Your number seven movie is Tully. Jason Reitman directing um, with uh, he's finally reuniting with his Juno screenwriter uh, Diablo Cody, who you know you remember she her script won the Oscar for Juno. It was a great movie back in uh, 07. But this is the first time they've worked together uh, in eleven years, and I thought it was so underrated. It came out I want to say in the spring, and it. Totally took me by surprise how much I liked it. Um, you think you're getting one thing, and by the end, you're, oh, wow, there's a lot more layers going on here. Charlize Theron uh, was great. I hope the Oscars remember her, at least nominate her. She was that sleepless mother of three. You know, they have, Reitman does all these crazy montages of, you know, newborn life. You know, she's breast pump, change the diaper, you know, baby monitor, alarm clock. You know, it's it really, it really makes you, you know, appreciate all the moms out there with that. She finally breaks down and hires a night nanny played by Mackenzie Davis, sort of this free spirit. And they, they teach, they learn a lot from each other, you know, one, you know, different life lessons as the older and the younger one. I mean, Ron Livingston is sort of too busy playing his video games upstairs the whole time as that neglectful husband. I promise it's the, it's the one that sort of, you know, when you, as soon as you're done, you, you kind of want to go back and see it a second time. A lot of movies don't don't make you want to do that. I like the movie a lot. There is a twist to it that I didn't think was necessarily necessary. But, you know, that's that's the way movies are. What was the, the, the other movie that, that Jason uh, Reitman did? Oh, um, he, well, he's done Up in the Air and Thank You for Smoking and a bunch of movies. I like Tully. I think it's a great movie. It's what you what you said as well. You know, it speaks to motherhood and anybody who's had a kid and had had gone had to gone gone through the raising uh, a baby those first few months and how terrible it is, how wonderful it is, but also how terrible it is will uh, definitely relate to that. The number six most uh, grossing movie of the year, The Grinch, with two hundred sixty five point five million dollars. This is another one of those movies I did not see. Uh, did you go see it? I skipped it too, man. So the number six movie on your list is Roma. This is actually, I would have put this at the top of my list. I love this movie. Set in Mexico, it's about a family of growing up in the 1970s. It focuses a lot on the maid. I thought it was a great movie. What about you? Why, why'd you put it as number six? Yeah, it's funny. Like a lot of people had it at, at number one, and I can't argue them. I think Arch Campbell did. I mean, Anne Hornaday did. A, a ton of people. It's it's an art masterpiece, man. I think some of the, the greatest black and white cinematography you'll ever see. I think similar to your comment with Beale Street, I felt a bit of an emotional distance from the characters a little bit. But now, see, now we're nitpicking. Man. That's that's why it's sort of in the middle of my list rather than I'm at the very top. But I, I don't you know hold it against anyone for putting it at the top. I mean, it won the Golden Lion at, at Venice. It's definitely. I think it's a lock for the Oscar for for best foreign film. I love Alfonso Cuaron. Mama Tambien was fantastic coming of age. That was his breakthrough. He did Children of Men with those long single takes, which was great. And then Gravity, I thought was, you know, that's a 3D masterpiece. That's the one 3D film I thought it worked because, you know, when you have little, you know, nuts and bolts flying through the air, it's not a gimmick. You know, it's not a Disney attraction jumping out of the screen. It actually is floating through the air because there's zero gravity. I thought it worked. But here it's much more, you know, patient, much more personal, almost like a um, neorealist film in some ways, or even Ozu over like a Tokyo story where it's patiently watching a family with a static shot or maybe a pan here and there. It was a first-time actress, Yulitza Aparicio. We actually talked to her out at, at Middleburg, which was great. You know, we had to use a translator, but she... You know, she she actually embodies uh, Koran's childhood caretaker, which I think is cool. A lot of these movies, you know, when when Truffaut does a 400 blows or, or name your name, your example of I'm going to go back and tell my childhood. A lot of times it's through their perspective. You know, it's a young boy. But I thought it was cool that Koran, instead of, you know, showing his own childhood, you know, exact experience of him as a young boy. I thought it was cool that he actually showed it from his caretaker's perspective. I thought that was a cool, gutsy move. But for me, really, it's all about that cinematography 
mentioned. We get those long single takes, you know, either scrolling, strolling down the, the sidewalks or, you know, the, the clotheslines there in Mexico City. You see the landscapes. You really can let it breathe, and you can scan your eye for the symbolic imagery, which I adore. Particularly, the opening credits, I thought, was was one of the strongest parts where you're looking. It's just that static single take looking at the pavement, you know, those mop suds from her mop, the water washing over. Suddenly, suddenly the water starts to show a reflection, and, and then all of a sudden a plane flies over. And I think I've debated in my mind what that sort of represents, and I think it's sort of those adult mature forces, that planes, you know, that, that take us away from our hometowns. I think that's because it ends with a plane, too. But also the water becomes symbolic. So, you know, there's working on a lot of levels because, you know, in the end she, she has to go out into the water to, you know, prove her worth and save the kids in the ocean, which I still don't know how he pulled off that single take out in the waves. How did he do it? But anyway, so, like, literally, even even in those opening couple seconds, you know you're watching a very, very special movie where the water, the plane, the, the everything's symbolic. I dug it. I think Roma's great. But, man, go check out Roma. You know, bring your patience. It's a slower-paced movie. It rewards it by the end. It's, it's an emotional punch in the end, I think. Yeah, it's an astounding film. And we go from that to the number five most grossing movie of the world in the U.S., Deadpool 2. Where we've cracked three hundred thousand, three hundred million, the uh, juxtaposition, eighteen point four nine million, the juxtaposition yeah, that's, that's of that's Roma and Deadpool. <laughs> you know that's how movies work. Uh, you, you one week you're gonna have Roma in the theater, and the next week it's gonna be Deadpool too. There's room for um, all of it, baby. There's room for both. I enjoyed Deadpool too. I enjoyed the the, the first Deadpool movie. I like these are R-rated superhero movies. It's a chance to give a little grit, tell a little more mature story. It doesn't have to necessarily be bloody and violent. I mean. It's a little violent, but, you know, I think it's more for the for the adult humor than anything else. I thought it was okay. I was a little more mixed on it than you, I think. I love the first one. I thought I just didn't see that, you know, that R-rated, raunchy, fourth wall breaking stuff coming in that first one. And I adored it. Like, you know, he goes into a bar and's like, you know, um, hey, I better better go talk to that guy over there. It might help further the plot. You know, little things like that that were so self-reflexive and postmodern, I, I super dug. And Ryan Reynolds is just so winning in that role. He was born to play Wade Wilson, I think. This one, its high moments, I thought, rivaled it. Like um, when they introduced, what is it, the X-Force, where they all jump out of the, the plane yeah. <laughs> to their demise. I thought that was one of my, like, still, I still cite that as one of my favorite movies or moments in a superhero movie. I thought it was hysterical watching them all bite the dust there. But... I guess I was a little more mixed on it because the the young kid in it, I thought, you know, remember he he's the guy yeah. that that cable Josh Brolin sent back to kill. Yeah, I, I found him kind of annoying. <laughs> I thought him kind of annoying, <laughs> and I thought it had a too many a couple too many false finishes. I think it stuck around a little too long. When, remember they go into after the the child abusers at the orphanage run by that pedophile. I think it's a dig at. You know the the rumors against Brian Singer, who you know was who made all the X Men movies. So that was sort of an internal uh, jab there. He's also attached to you know he got fired midway. He left midway through, but he was the director on you know he has the credit on Bohemian Rhapsody. So I think you're going to hear a lot more about that. So I just didn't know if it was not entirely necessary to go to go there in a in a fun raunchy superhero movie. I don't know if it was. I don't want to call it bad taste, but I don't know. I, I think there maybe was an, a, another way they could have done. So your number, your number five top film was First Man. I specifically went to go see in the theater because I thought it would be visually something great. And it turned out to be something great. But it's an odd movie. I don't know if you ever get to really know Neil, Neil Armstrong. I mean, it's a wonderful performance. What's your take? Why'd you put it number five? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because uh, it's one of those that I, you know, I was blown away by it. But I, I totally get 
why some people would walk out a little cold on it because there is that you know a lot of people say you know it's he's a quote unquote unlikable hero we we don't get to you know it's not our rah rah you know patriotic you know oh yay Neil Armstrong but for me I thought that was exactly why. I loved it and thought it was a little different. You know, we'd already seen Apollo 13 and The Right Stuff, which those are more of those sort of rah-rah movies. And, you know, it's almost, you know, how do you can't even top those. They're they're just masterpieces of the space biopic sort of genre. But so for me, I almost appreciated that Damien Chazelle, who who did La La Land, and he won Best Director for that. I think he's just an amazing filmmaker. And you can kind of see that with some of those space sequences with, the you know, the rattling, you know, spaceships. You feel like the any nut or bolt is going to fly off and we're going to, you know, we're going to watch Neil and Ryan Gosling implode it any moment. But to me, I almost appreciated that Damien Chazelle went that alternate route. It's more of a movie about grief and, you know, his trying to bond with Claire Foy sort of the end when they, they touch the NASA quarantine glass. They raise their hands. I mean, that's why it cuts to black. The story is about them finally coming back together as a husband and wife. And But to me, it's mostly about, you know, it it's about a father's grief. He has to bury his child in the opening of the movie. And we watch the trip to the moon becomes more about him overcoming that. You know, he, he stares down and you know, he has that moment in the moon. We won't spoil it in case anyone hadn't seen it yet. But to me, I didn't see that moment coming where he finally, you know, puts behind his his grief over his daughter's death uh, when he's standing on the moon, that in, that introspective moment. I read something the other day where Christopher Nolan, you know, is just <laughs> one of the greatest going today. He And he made Interstellar, another space movie. But he had commented on First Man and said, you know, he praised Damien Chazelle. He said he made the most introverted movie about the most extroverted moment in mankind's history. So I thought it was kind of gutsy to take that route. I totally get it's not going to be for everybody, but I think years from now we'll look back and be like, oh, yeah, that that belonged towards the top. I think it's totally underrated. It's not winning any Oscars. It's not barely getting nominated, which I think is a shame. I thought it was one of the best this year. He had such a great performance. People don't always give him credit for what a good actor he is. And he was just so wonderful in that. So the number four most top grossing movie, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, $416.77 million. I did not see that movie. Did you, you, you probably had to review that, right? No, yeah, yeah, I went to it. I actively not only just had to, I actually was looking forward to seeing it because Jurassic Park was such a touchstone of my childhood. And then I thought... After those, you know, the two original sequels, I thought that Jurassic World, the, the comeback one, the sort of the reboot there from a couple years ago with, with Chris Pratt, I thought it actually was pretty decent. I was like, okay, you know, I can, I'm back on board with this. Sadly, <laughs> Fallen Kingdom, I thought was a fitting title. I thought it was a Fallen Kingdom. It's probably the most, I'll say the most disappointing movie for me this summer in terms of I was hoping such great things and was just very let down. Yeah, there's those nostalgic moments where you hear echoes of the John Williams score and you kind of have those childhood moments come back. I think I was most disappointed that I thought Jeff Goldblum was going to be in it the whole time. He's all over the trailers, you know. Yeah, he's Jeff Goldblum's return. There are going to be uh, uh, dinosaurs on your uh, on your dinosaur tour, right? But instead, he's only in the opening and the end. And then in between, he's nowhere to be found. I, I kept looking for him the whole movie, and as a result, I was looking at my watch. I like to imagine you dropping your popcorn and your, your milk duds and sit just going, I'm out. Just, <laughs> the, the second that the, that the dinosaur winks, I'm out. That's it. I'm a film reviewer, but I'm leaving. <laughs> Boom. So speaking of good, your number four movie, A Star is Born, a pretty great musical uh, movie. Uh, what was your take? Why'd you make it number four? I thought it deserved towards the top because I was pleasantly surprised. Kind of the opposite of what we just said about Jurassic World. I went in with... 
with very low expectations. After all, it's what, either, depending how you count it, the fourth or fifth version of it. I mean, there was the, the 37 one with Janet Gaynor, there was the 54 one with Judy Garland, and the 76 one with Barbara Streisand. And the Garland one, you know, is, is a classic in its own right. I think one of the AFI's top 25 musicals. So whenever there's, there's a remake like that, I'm always skeptical. But man, Bradley Cooper came and screened it here in, in Georgetown, did the premiere here because, you know, he went to Georgetown University. And I was really impressed, not only with him as an actor, it might be his best, you know, pure performance as an actor. You know, he had the surprising country rock vocal chops there and, and also playing sort of the, you know, the boozy alcoholic. I, I thought it really stretched him as an actor. And so I, I really appreciated him as there. But also, even as a director, man, he really, really surprised me there. You'll note, and this is a spoiler, but I assume most people have seen this, but I'm sitting there in the theater. You see Bradley Cooper come on screen in his very first scene. He climbs into a limousine and drinks out of a flask in his very first scene after his first concert. He gets in the limo. If you look behind him in the background, there's neon billboards of Nashville or Vegas, wherever they are, and there's a neon, there's a noose behind him. Talk about tragic foreshadowing. So I'm sitting there saying, oh no, here, that, that's, that's great. You know, you knew from the past ones, James Mason walks out, a suicidal walk out into the waves of the Pacific. So I didn't know it would be an actual noose he's foreshadowing. A gut punch of an ending. Those fatalistic moments to me are what, is, is how you do a tragedy. And it kind of proved that this story is, is sort of evergreen, almost like, you know, we're going to tell Romeo and Juliet, you know, it's going to end poorly. You know that, you know, the, the actress is going to rise and the actor is going to fall. Or in this case, they make it musicians instead of actors. But man, also, we're bearing the lead. Lady Gaga, such a surprise breakout. I've been a fan of hers for a long time. I always thought she was way more than the meat dress uh, ever since she did a, a tribute to Sting at the Kennedy Center Honors of If I Ever Lose My Faith in You. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> let alone the Tony Bennett collaborations, all that stuff. But I thought Shallow, that's easily going to win the Oscar for the song. She's been nominated as the actress to sort of her star is born. I think that's why it kind of works. You know, she's a green actress, but we're watching her star it born on screen as well throughout the movie and that shallow mo- man man that song that'll that'll give you goosebumps every time i hear it so great movie great remake they did it justice and uh, i think it's just as good as any of the other ones if you go back and watch the garland one i think you could say this holds up with it i put it number four just because it's a remake very well done though yeah it's a pretty great film he's an astounding act he does his best chris christopherson yeah, <laughs> yeah. chris christopherson is a pretty good actor bradley cooper does a great job so uh, the number three most top grossing movie of the year in the U.S., Incredibles 2, $608.58 million. So uh, I did not see this. Uh, I assume you saw it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was a fun family flick. And obviously it almost you were like, why did it take so long for them to make another Incredibles? Because you think, you know, the superhero culture is so... You know, that's all the rage now. You'd think that Pixar would have dusted off its huge hit Incredibles from years ago. But I really enjoyed it. I thought them giving Holly Hunter the reins here, you know, as the mom, sort of the getting the, the center of the story here was was interesting. And um, and the dad, you know, Craig T. Nelson having to stay home and play Mr. Mom, I thought had some really funny moments. But to me, I thought what really made it sing was the commentary on us, you know, on our, our addiction to digital devices. I think, you know, the villain is actually, yeah. he actually, you know, mesmerizes people from, you know, he hypnotizes them by staring at their phones. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was so spot on. I'm so glad to see it do well. You know, when people make their 
their best lists of all time. The first one's still always going to make it, you know, for, you know, that's just how it goes. But as far as a, a follow up, I thought it, they did a darn good job with it. It was a fun, it, you could bring the whole family to it too, you know. It's good when those movies like that or the Grinch come out because, you know, that's that's part of the fun of going to the movies. Definitely. And your number 3 is A Quiet Place. I saw this. I like this. I think what you said before about, you know, we're getting some really well-made horror movies these days and this is this year's get out how about you why'd you put it so high on your list yes i loved it purely for well two points one the sheer originality i think i mentioned earlier if you remove all sequels and prequels and remakes that it's the number two highest grossing movie of the year just you know similar to get out so i wanted to reward it high on the list for that reason i love when a good original concept comes and just takes your breath away literally and that's what this did and that that brings me to the second point of why i loved it is it's one of the most memorable in theater movie going experiences i've ever had because purely by its premise you know where where you know this this family john you know john krasinski and his real life wife emily blunt their family they can't make any any sounds or else these you know these creatures it's totally a creature feature they run out and and kill you on the spot in this you know post apocalyptic sort of dystopian future out of the farm purely based on that premise no one in the audience said a word. I mean, even the the typical munching of popcorn or people, you know, checking their cell phones or giggling to themselves, all that was just rendered silent because you almost felt like the creatures would run out and grab you in the theater if you made one po- <laughs> if you made one popcorn munch. So to me it was one of those, you know, reminders similar to get out of the importance of going and watching a movie in a theater, you know, we watched, you know, Bird Box was what it was, and I enjoyed it for what it was on, on at home on Netflix on the couch. But you have all those distractions at home. You're folding laundry. You're two screening things, you know, looking at your phone, checking your Facebook feed while watching a movie. You're missing stuff by doing that. So to me, A Quiet Place was this clarion call to, hey, this is how exciting and nail-biting it can be to actually be in a theater. And man, oh man, that Emily Blunt um, bathtub scene where she's trying to give birth to a child that you know is going to cry, so you need to have it quiet. I was freaking out. And final point, I love that how they got out. A lesser filmmaker at the end of the movie would have stuck around too long for a giant battle when Emily Blunt's shooting all the creatures in this creature feature. But instead, they figure out how to kill the creatures. And all we see is the daughter, you know, the deaf daughter with, with um, the hearing aid. She turns up a microphone and Emily Blunt cocks the shotgun, cut to black. Perfect way to end it. Yeah, great movie, great movie. Shut up and go to the movies sometime, or go to the movies and shut up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's, so uh, the the number two most grossing movie of the year, this is one we actually mentioned earlier on, Avengers Infinity War, $678.82 million, Marvel movie, a big Marvel movie, a pretty daring movie. Um, it's sort of the culmination of all these other movies that came before it, and uh, there's a big payoff at the end. And so, you know, you're already for you're, you're you're already buying your tickets for the next movie because you want to see what comes next. How about you? What's your thought on it? I really enjoyed it, and again, it exceeded my expectations. I didn't include it in my top ten just because it it sort of felt like half a movie. You know, originally it was going to be Infinity Infinity War Part One, and so we almost have to you know wait until next summer to see how that's going to end. I highly I highly doubt all our beloved characters are are gone for good. I, I you just know that with those reality stones and time stones and all those ways to alter you know what happened, I guarantee that some of them will be coming back. But all that said. 
man, it really it really impressed me in terms of um, just think of how gutsy of a move that is. To we're gonna let the villain win this this movie with Thanos, and he gets an actual arc. You kind of you know you kind of understand yeah. his motivations uh, as you know as ill as and horrific and uh, genocidal as they are. You know he he has a philosophy behind it that you can actually latch on to so we go from avengers infinity war to your number two pick which is another marvel movie a great marvel movie i'm gonna let you do all the talking on this because i'm sure you got tons of praise black panther yes and it's funny how this worked out because it's also the number one top grossing so these kind of timed out perfectly my friend they brought in seven hundred and point zero six million dollars it's a big movie and it's well deserved uh people people reward movies that are good i think actually if you look at the top three movies uh, incredibles 2 avengers video war and black panther you know yeah these big blockbusters but these are really good movies they're not like solo star wars story you know people even though they may go out and see those movies they're not going to go see them again and again and these three movies they went and saw again and again absolutely and but anyway and particularly with black panther i mean this was a cultural watershed moment it was you know it's not only the top grossing movie of the year and but in terms of all time if you adjust for inflation it's it's 30th all time right behind greece and the godfather and a couple other huge ones i think it's outgrossed Ghostbusters when you adjust it for inflation. So that this is the type of cultural phenomenon we're talking about in terms of we'll be talking about this for years. Um, not only the world building that Ryan Coogler did. I, God, I've had my eye on him for years. Um, he, he burst on the scene. He won Sundance with Fruitvale Station with Michael B. Jordan in the lead role. And it's sort of both of their breakouts. I remember it came out the week of the Trayvon Martin verdict and you were like, whoa, like this movie is so of its time. Gritty true story out in Oakland. And then based off their independent film acclaim on that they got to make creed together which oh my god no one saw that coming in terms of how you could reinvent the rocky franchise which everyone sort of wrote off as sort of dead and gone they reinvented that for a new generation so to see coogler finally get to reign the reins for this superhero movie back with michael b jordan i was so excited going in and there was so much hype by advanced ticket sales breaking records and you know all this stuff that man i was worried that it wouldn't live up but oh my god it totally not only met the expectations but exceeded it i think to me it all comes down to Yes, Wakanda. We'll be crossing our, you know, our arms and saying Wakanda forever, pretty much for forever. You could go up to this, anyone on the street and they could do that in terms of pop culture. But to me, it all comes down to the two central roles and the performances. You know, you had Chadwick Boseman from, you know, 40. He played, you know, Jackie Robinson and James Brown and um, Thurgood Marshall gets this role. He's the, the stoic protagonist T'Challa, plays it almost with these Shakespearean proportions of, you know, having to retake his rightful place on the throne. Echoes of the Lion King there. <laughs> Hamlet there, which was Hamlet. But then on the other side, you have Eric Killmonger, Michael B. Jordan, one of the most effective villains in movie history, you know, not just in superhero movies, but in movies in general. You know, we finally got a Joker to rival the Batman. You know, so many movies, there's that disparity. Here, some audiences are almost rooting for him. You know, the, the historic reasons of slave ships and things that he gives, you're almost like, yeah, all right, I understand his his reasoning, both on a historic level, but then also on a personal level, you know, the, the intro of his family dying. So I just thought it was these two titans, a dream match of Bozeman, Jordan, one-on-one, mano-a-mano on the cliff of a waterfall. You know, it's literally, it's epic proportions. And I thought Ryan Coogler nailed it. Wakanda forever, baby. Yeah, great film. Great film. And speaking of great moving going experience, we haven't even talked about your number one pick. What is that, sir? I actually went with, and this is a total 
bias on my part in terms of the where I saw it and when, but I went with with Green Book, Peter Farrelly. So much of you know our attachment to a movie is is how we saw it and when we saw it. And to me, it was the closing night of the Middleburg Film Fest, and I was surrounded by it was a good mix, not only diverse, you know. Racially in the crowd, but also critics, moviegoers, you know, some film festivals like that, you know, you get a good mix in the crowd. And so I just remember watching this movie, not really expecting all that much. I knew the performances would be good, but just sort of watching the crowd's reaction throughout the whole movie, it's sort of built with scene to scene. The buddy laughs, the buddy comedy laughs, sort of the road trip, the further you went down. Everyone was cracking up, but then also there was those really touching moments, you know, on race and class and sexuality and family. And Mahershala Ali's out in the rain saying, well, if, if I'm not black enough, I'm not white enough, and I'm not man enough, what am I? It hits a lot of those really deep issues. But I also thought it kind of dealt with lowbrow and highbrow, which is fitting that Peter Farrelly's doing this. You know, who knew that Dumb and Dumber and, and uh, There's Something About Mary, the Farrelly yeah. Brothers— could pull off something like this. It's sort of a feel. It's definitely a, a feel good pick for me. I know it's going to rank a little lower. It's sort of probably you know a mid middle of the top ten for a lot of a lot of critics. You know, it's seen a lot of pushback in recent weeks about you know uh, as soon as it was sort of deemed a front runner, you know, and especially now that it's won the best best picture comedy musical at the Globes. Every year there's that pushback by all the think pieces. There were some questions about whether Don Shirley's real family would be, you know, is questioning the accuracy of how close these these two people were. It was written by Viggo Mortensen's character's son. He actually wrote it about his, his actual family's experience. So, you know, I'm sure he's writing based on just stories that his family was told. So it's hard to fault him for that. But then a lot of other think pieces, um, you know, called out. They, they say it's sort of a, I guess, sort of a, a cliched driving Miss Daisy or I guess reverse driving Miss Daisy. Um, take on racial issues, sort of a you know a whitewash. They, they call you know the, in film schools they say the the white savior trope or the magic negro quote trope. But to me, I thought it danced right on that up to that line. But I thought what made it great was that it, it kind of walked that line perfectly. I thought I thought both characters not only great performances. Viggo Mortensen, if anyone saw Captain Fantastic, you know the comedic range that he has, and then of course Mahershala Ali from Moonlight and House of Cards and all the rest. I just I love watching those two actors duke it out in that teal car. I think I have a soft spot for buddy comedy road trips. Almost reminded me of planes, trains, automobile, automobiles in a way with with John Candy, the the brutish, you know, off color jokes of Viggo Mortensen here, and then Mahershala, I guess, would be the no nonsense Steve Martin, just get me home. But then them coming home for the holidays and them writing, you know, notes, him helping coach the the love letters back to his wife and sign it, P.S. Kiss the kids. It just hit all the spots for me. It, it's definitely a feel-good pick. Even looking at my list now, I'm kind of like, well, you know, it's definitely not. It wasn't the phenomenon of Black Panther or Stars Born. It's probably not as as well-made as First Man or, or Roma or Beale Street. And it's not as original as A Quiet Place or even Tully. So looking at the list, you could easily juggle it around. So, But I just kind of went with it at number one because it was one of those that, you know, I feel like I, I can recommend to anyone. You can take a family to it. And everyone will come out feeling a little better about themselves. Uh, it sort of surprised me. It uh, was one the movie going experience I uh, you know remembered the most from the year, and um, I think it's got a ninety five percent Rotten Tomatoes audience score. Similar as Bohemian Rhapsody was way its audience score was higher than the critics were. I think that's sort of telling. The Globes rewarded the the audience, uh, the mainstream appeal here, and I don't know. I thought it was a perfect balance of art and entertainment. Now, what say you? <laughs> Break, ding me uh, apart. Uh, uh, I liked it a lot. You know, it's funny looking at your list. If you throw Black Panther in there, you're looking at five movies that address the subject of race in America, which I think is 
I think it's indicative of, of what the dialogue that's going on in America right now. And, and five well-made movies that approach the same sub- subject from a lot of different ways. And, and this one, looking back in time, you know, examining race relations, you know, in the early 1960s. It's an interesting film. It's an entertaining film. The acting is great. The, you know, the story story's not particularly complicated. That's one thing I maybe might fault it for uh, when you look at something like Blind Spotting, which is, you know, pretty complex in the way it sort of delivers its message. It's a great movie. I mean, all these movies are on your list. Have you ever thought about, you know, as a, as a, a film critic, uh, is it essential that you have to do your, you know, one to 10? Or, or would you ever consider as like, you know, putting them out alphabetically and say, you rank them however you, you want. These are the 10 that I think are the best. Yeah, that would I mean that would be a much easier way for me to do it and a much safer way. But you know, where's the fun in that? You know, you got to go out on a ledge sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> people want controversy. People want controversy. One last thing: what movies are you looking forward to in 2019? Well, Give me three. There's some big, you know. There's your bigger, you know, uh, bigger ones like Captain Marvel and stuff. That'll be a lot of fun. And I've surprisingly liked the the Disney live action ones. You know, they've done in recent years. You know, Jungle Book, Beauty and the Beast, all the rest. So I'm actually, I'm actually curious to see what they're doing with uh, the Lion King, which I love. But in terms of, I guess, one that I'm really, really digging and looking forward to, I want to see Jordan Peele's follow-up to Get Out. I want to see Us. Trailers look creepy. Yeah. I'm trying not to read too much about it yet because I don't want to spoil it. But, man, yeah. I, I'm so – God, Get Out was so – that was my number one pick last year. And, man, I think uh, – God, I, I, I think it's one of the, a movie we'll be talking about for generations to come. Not only was it creepy on first watch, but on second watch and third watch, you just see everything has double and triple meanings, all the imagery, all the dialogue. You can read one way the first time you see it and a whole different way the second time uh, you see it. Yeah, Us. I think Us is my most anticipated one. I don't know if it'll be the best of the year, but it's the one I'm looking forward to the most. Jason, thanks for coming on. We'll talk again next year, or certainly you and I will talk uh, off mic uh, at other times to debate movies. But uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, as always. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of It's All Journalism. It's 2019, and why don't you make it a New Year's resolution to sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to produce an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Lagrisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.